You're listening to episode 37 of the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. Welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. I am Munir Lazuzi, a medical device expert specialized on quality and regulatory affairs. My mission is to help you learn how to place a compliant medical device on the market. For that, I'll share with you my experience and the one of others on this podcast. Are you ready for your dose of regulation and standard today? Okay, so let the show begin. Welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. Here is Monir Alazuzi from easymedicaldevice.com. And today I wanted to talk more about combination products. I will not talk about regulation specifically, but we'll talk about uh, a case study related to a combination product. So we will talk about a product uh, that um, was uh, produced or designed, if I can say, uh, in combination with a medical device and a pharmaceutical, a drug. And for that, I have with me Sharon Hyde, who is the CEO of Hyde Biopharma Consulting Group. And she will help us and tell us her story and also tell us her experience related to this, uh, the design of this product. So Sharon, welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here today. Um, just by introduction, um, I'm CEO, as you mentioned, of Aid Biopharma Consulting Group, and uh, I provide consulting services to uh, drug and device companies, especially those that are trying to create uh, a new product called a combination device. Good. So yeah, it's exactly the topic of today. So I think you had uh, made a lot of um, experience related to combination products. And uh, when we had the pre-talk, we discussed about a lot of your projects and one was specifically interesting for, for me. So I said, why not talking about that uh, during, uh, during the podcast? Uh, so can you share with us this project and uh, what it is exactly and what exactly was the problem that you were trying to solve? Yes, uh, thank you for asking that. So I was working with uh, a client that was uh, a pharma company that manufactured a specific drug uh, to treat patients with migraine headaches. And the, the patients would be much better served if we could, uh, if the company could develop a device that would help them self um, administer the drug to them when they felt a migraine headache coming on. But the company wasn't able to do this alone because they weren't a device manufacturer. So I was able to pair them up with um, a device company that was able to engineer a product that was able to adapt to the medication and then allow the patient to actually self-administer uh, the dose to them without having to go to a medical practitioner, which would be difficult if you think about it when you have migraines happening so frequently. So mainly when you have migraines, um, can you um, self-administer something to you without this kind of, uh, of product? Or what was the method before uh, you have developed uh, this product? Well, unfortunately for the patient, um, they would have to suffer a, a lot. And when they had their worst migraine attacks, they would go to a doctor. Or if they were common enough and well-known, they might go to a nurse. 
and the nurse would give them an IV injection. So it was um, pretty laborious. They'd have to take the vial of medication, withdraw it into a syringe, administer it to a patient, and then the patient would go home. And they wouldn't be able to do this as often as they would need treatment. So the idea of them being able to dose themselves was really something that we aspired to do. Great. So then you had the problem, you had the ID. So what was then the solution or what, what was the journey that you, you followed, if I can say, to arrive to the solution? Well, I had my client and, and myself spend some time getting um, information, uh, understanding what the patient's needs were. So we talked to a lot of the migraine sufferers, and what we realized was that um, some of them couldn't predict when they were going to have the headache or how long it would last. And so the idea that they could carry something with them, that they could self-medicate without making any mistake that would harm themselves was a great idea. And then we also learned that um, they, they do some things that we wouldn't normally think of. They tend to be very, um, very sensitive to light exposure. So if you have migraines, you'll tend to be in a room where you darken the shades, you turn the lights out, and you might be there for 24, 48 hours. So we realized that we were going to have to have this medication be administered by the patient to themselves, even in total darkness, to make, make it a little bit more challenging. Yeah, I, I'm not really um, uh, knowing really well uh, about migraine, but I had some friend that had that, and it's true that they all told me, yeah, as soon as they start to have a migraine, they had to be in a dark room. Uh, so yeah, it's it's true that taking into account this information for development of a product is really uh, really interesting. Exactly. And there are challenges in doing this. It's not straightforward, not something that is going to be simple. Um, so, for example, some of the challenges that we had to confront were that the formulation uh, of the drug that was in the vial originally might have to change to um, put it into what we call an auto-injector. So, maybe I'll tell you a little bit about what auto-injectors are and how we adapted them. Yep. So um, some people, some listeners might be uh, familiar with what we call EpiPens because they, they can be used to administer uh, medication during an allergic reaction. Well, that technology was approved way back in the 1980s, and that was a, a big step forward in um, patients' um, health improvement. Over the years, device companies have now created platforms where they can use it to administer many other broader types of uh, medications for other disease states. So we talked to a couple of those companies and figured out which one would have the, the right kind of auto injector mm -hmm. that would work with what we're talking about. So some of the things that we had to do was to change the formulation. That means um, the excipients, the diluent in which the molecule was uh, dissolved because the volume that would be administered in an injection syringe and the volume that's administered through an auto injector are not the same. That caused um, some viscosity changes, which means that when the patient tries to inject it, they'll have to use much more force and they may not get an accurate injection. So we had to go through all of these changes and understand exactly what combination of changes was going to work. And when we finally figured that out, 
Um, then there was a very long process of the reverse engineering to be able to get the prototype device to actually work and deliver it. And we had to do a lot of prototype testing. Yeah, I can imagine that uh, it's a kind of, I don't know if we can call that clinical study or clinical uh, trials or this kind of, of things to test if your product is, is good. Um, I mean, you can test some products on the patients without drug inside or this kind of thing. So is this some of the tests that you have done? Yes, and that's a very good point. Um, I, I should make one other, um, one other important uh, caveat, and that is that these are drugs that are already approved. So we're not creating a new drug. Otherwise, that would take so much longer. Um, and these are drugs that the FDA and, and the device and the drug companies know would be something that's suitable for a patient to administer to themselves. So the process of evaluating how the patient will react and how well they'll use this auto-injector is called human factors. Yeah. And um, it's very well recognized um, as a discipline. And it can be very challenging and compl complicated. So what we do is we evaluate in observational studies. We watch and we video record a number of patients and they're randomized into groups. We call them injection naive and injection knowledgeable. So okay. you might have, for example, um, diabetes patients who give themselves insulin. Mm -hmm. um, they might qualify, this is not the real drug, so it's kind of like a, a dummy or a placebo. So they might qualify to be our um, uh, participants in an educated group of the study. And what we do is we give them the real world experience. Okay. We give them the product and we say, um, open the package, read the insert, read the instructions, prepare the site with an alcohol swab, uh, inject it, um, et cetera. There's eight or nine different steps that they have to go through. And we, we look at them and it's kind of like jury selection. We qualify them and make sure that they're going to be able to um, complete the study. So once we have that, then we actually conduct a study under uh, what's called protocol. Um, and then we have statistical evaluation. We look at a lot of different things, such as how many steps in the process were they confused by? How many errors did they make? How long did it take for them to understand? So we want to make sure that they cannot harm themselves. I can imagine. So, uh, as you've said, so it's human factors. I think we have also another keyword, which is uh, usability tests. So, how to use the products and how to uh, use it with the information that you provide to the patients. Uh, and I think it's uh, it's really important because, as you said, it's auto medication. Uh, so we have to be sure that the patient uses it correctly, and also that the information that we are providing to them is correct. Because as you said, maybe they are misunderstanding a certain step. So then we have to be uh, to be more careful and more accurate on the on the on the on the instruction that we are providing to them. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of things that you might not imagine or you might take for granted. Um, it's you're right. How easy to interpret for a layperson 
is the prescribing insert or the instructions. Sometimes it's got pictures. And in fact, what we do is we modify it based on the real life experiences to improve it and make it more understandable. It's important, especially important, that these patients um, give the injection at the right point. This medication is effective when delivered subcutaneously, which is just a mere quarter of an inch below the skin surface in in fatty tissue, which we all have. And so um, the injector itself is designed so that they can't make a mistake in, in how deep, but they could inject it in the wrong place on the body. So again, that's one of the things that we worry about. No, it's great. Uh, I, when I was listening to you, I was thinking, yeah, but um, subcutaneously, how can I do that? It's not like something that people will think, oh, it's easy. Is just this millimeter or this uh, this size when you are not an educated um, uh, healthcare professional. Uh, so yeah, I think it's it's great to have a, a product that already is usable without without me to think about it. You have just to, as you mentioned, place it maybe at the right place on the body. But at the end, I don't think of how how yeah how far I should go with the syringe or anything because the device mm-hmm. will make it by itself. I mean, it's designed for that. And and that is absolutely critical. It's important that it's not uh, injected IV intravenously or intramuscularly, and it cannot be because the needle is very accurate and precise. And the needle um, withdraws once you hear the click, so it cannot be used a second time. The other thing I was going to mention is um, I said that a lot of these patients get recurrent headaches. So these um, these injectors are packaged uh, usually in a box or a carton where a doctor can prescribe four of them. And for many migraine sufferers, this will be enough um, for either two weeks or for a month. So they don't have to worry about being caught without medication. So um, in terms of, of that, um, I suppose there was a risk of... Um uh, overdose, if I can say, uh, in terms of uh, usage, but it depends really on the patient. The patient uh, has to uh, inject himself the product, but if he injects two two doses instead of one, uh, is this something that you also considered on the instruction or on the warnings? It, it is, and that is always a concern we have, but I'm going to use um, just an analogy. <clears throat> when you have an over-the-counter product, um, the first thing you have to do is read substantial warnings and um, training information about how to use the product. The same thing is true in a case like this. And before a patient gets this prescription, they're counseled by their medical practitioner on how to avoid an overdose. So the reason for prescribing only a certain amount of medication Um, is that you can monitor how often a patient is asking for a refill and to make sure that they're using the medication correctly. No, it's great. Um, When you've said uh, testing, what I liked is the fact that uh, there was also the testing with the videos and and everything with the patients. So Mm -hmm. can you go more deeply on this? So how is it working at the end? So are you uh, first the patient, I suppose they know that they are doing that for some test of a new product? Uh, so is it easy to engage some patients on this kind of tests? So it's really interesting. Um, it's, it's in effect like a clinical trial, except that um, you're, you're not um, looking at pharmaco, pharmaco, 
pharmacodynamic, pharmacokinetic uh, principles, but you're looking at usability, like you said. So um, we work with firms that do this on a professional basis. And uh, depending on what the treatment and who the patient population is, they will at first um, recruit for us a group of patients that are have nothing to do with the actual disease state. Um, this is how we allocate them to, in this case, we'll call it inject self-injection naive versus self-injection knowledgeable. So we define the parameters of the patients that we're looking for. Uh, the firm recruits them from a database, qualifies them. There's a, a very long questionnaire. There's an informed consent process that has to go through. Uh, this is all regulated by the FDA, so um, it's taken very seriously. And then um, patients are, uh, each patient does this separately, so there's no bias that could be involved. Okay. Uh, there, yeah, so it, it and it can take a while depending on the number of patients. Um, I don't remember how many. At, at the beginning, I was thinking maybe there is many patients on the uh, on one room and you are watching them. But yeah, it's true that some some can watch the others how they are doing and can be biased. Then uh, so it's it's true that seeing them individually, I think, is a, a good method. <laughs> No, it's kind of like um, a doctor's office sitting at a desk and then okay. the patient is uh, sitting at a desk across from them. So they're looking at each other, kind of like if you were in a classroom almost, looking at a desk, two people facing each other. Um, and then the practitioner is explaining it. They're going through the actual prescription insert. They're pointing to areas. They're asking the patient to repeat things back to them. Um, then they give them the intact package and they ask them to go ahead and try to execute on what they just heard. And so um, there's a camera that's recording them and there's a notepad and a skilled person is recording what they're doing, what they're not doing, when they hesitate, when they have concern, when they need to ask for help. And this can be done in some cases by 10 or 15 or 20 people until they get what they consider a representative and statistically valid population. Then they will improve that material. And then to actually execute the human uh, factor study, they will use patients. Okay. So um, is it, so I suppose it's the manufacturer who is telling them exactly what they have to, to test, or is it really random? Means that we just give the product and we say, use it. And if at the end they are finalizing the instruction and completing uh, the job, then it's it's good. So, is there some criteria that we are asking those professionals to to check or to look at uh, so that we can maybe improve our products? Or is it really like no, just give it to your patients and we'll see what will come out of that? No, it's highly regulated. Uh, it's all under protocol. It's it's all by only trained practitioners. It's all through companies that specialize in this field. In fact, um, we qualify the company to see how many of these uh, previous studies they've done. And we would want to make sure that they've done one with this same kind of device uh, because there's many other products, many other products that require um human factors testing and human factors for this device uh, versus another device would not necessarily have anything in common. Okay. That's really, really, really interesting. So um, 
when uh, when we finalize, as you've said, so we have 10, 20 patients uh, and we, we see the results. So what is exactly the deliverable from this company? So I suppose they give you a report with uh, mm-hmm. following what, what was mentioned on the protocol. Uh, so what are you doing with that then? Yes, very good question. It's an extensive report of observations and findings. It has the um, raw data, the, the actual observations attached to it in an appendix. Um, it analyzes what worked, what didn't work, what might be left for improvement. Um, it recommends things that maybe the patient contributed that um, the company had not anticipated. And then that would lead to a repeat of the study under actual uh, conditions. All of that is then required to be submitted to the FDA for review and approval before this uh, combination product is able to be used uh, by patients. Okay, so it's really a cycle. So you, I suppose the first time you have a prototype, you test it, you improve it with this usability test, then you retest it with the other patient and until, if I can say, you meet, uh, you meet all, all the requirements. Yes, yes, there, there is an FDA requirement for every aspect of this. Good. Um, so uh, that uh, just one thing. So maybe something that uh, you already noticed. As you mentioned, sometimes the patients are arriving with some uh, creative idea, maybe to use your products, even if you give them instruction. Do you have some kind of uh, story or some kind of anecdotes like that that you said? Yeah, the, we asked the patient to do that and use it in that way or in in the other way. Um. Well, it, it, it's things that we might take for granted. It's putting in a picture or a pictorial um, representation with, let's say, breaking, um, breaking a sequence of events into different pictures. So you and I may say, take the cap off, um, take it out of the cart and take the cap off. That's obvious, but not necessarily for some people. So graphic representation is one thing. Um, sequence, what comes first, what comes second is another one. Larger print, because we have patients of all ages and all different prescriptions of eyeglasses. So we will use bolding, we will use bigger font, darker font. Um, we might put less words in a space uh, so that we can call their attention to it. Okay, so yeah, there is, uh, I think, a lot of learnings from that. Yeah, uh, depending on the on the on the population and and the, and the people. So, um, in terms of uh, of products, if I can say so, at the end, um, what what was the the result of all those tests for for the products that you tried to develop? Was there any good results? Yes, a very good question. So what we learned also, um, there's different stages of testing in human factors. Um, What I described to you was really more towards the end of the process when the the device had been developed. But along the way, there will also be um, focus groups that will, for example, look at um, how much pressure does it take to be able to literally flip a cap off. and how much, I mean, little things that we would take for granted are not little things. Um, sometimes, depending on how strong or weak your grip is, um, the cap might go flying. What we observed also was that some patients had difficulty pushing the syringe to the point where it would click. And let's say you have arthritis, then that could be something painful. So this is a very long iterative process of learning. 
and is customized for this patient population. Okay, so yeah, there is, I think, uh, as, as we said, so usability test, human factors test uh, is really important. We are used normally uh, on our um, kind of regulation process to uh, to test that the, the product is biocompatible or that the product is, um, is mm -hmm. safe. Uh, in terms of uh, of long term use, etc., but just the fact that we have uh, some patients have to use it, and the fact that they can maybe misuse it, we have also to to test those uh, those um, elements uh, to be sure that uh, it will be safe for them, that um, there will be not no risk for 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 patients and everything. So, uh, um, usability test is also something that is starting to come to Europe. Uh, but I think it's something that you are using since a long time now uh, in the U.S. And I think it's really uh, a requirement from FDA. They would not accept uh, any dossier without a usability test uh, report, I, if, I, if I remember. Exactly. And you just mentioned a point that is so important. Um, recall that the original version presentation of the drug is something that a practitioner administers. Um, we have to make sure that that we have what we call, what we call bioequivalency between the doses, and that's why um, subcutaneous dosing is imperative because that's how the drug will be absorbed into the body and then distributed. And um, all of this is uh, it's like developing um, essentially a new drug product with a new container, which is the delivery system, which is that device. And it's a complex um, application that goes into the FDA and the FDA reviews it and decides if we've done enough work. So do you, did you have already an experience where FDA kind of rejected or um, asked you to do more tests uh, for usability? Uh, there, there's always requests for additional clarification or something that we might have missed. Uh, so the answer is yes. Okay. Um, so um, then I think uh, in terms of product, um, this uh, was a product that really helped a lot of patients. Um, do you have, uh, do you think there could be some improvements also to those products or, I mean, I mean, there is still technology that is, uh, that is in increasing. So uh, is there still some uh, new version that we can have like an electronic EpiPen or I don't know what kind of uh, other, other things you can imagine? There, there are concepts for, let's say, what we call follow-on versions or next generations. Um, I, I don't think that they have uh, progressed to date, but because there's other implications for whatever we think it solves a problem, we want to make sure that it doesn't create a problem. Um, one of them would be a multi-dose auto-injector um, so oh, yeah. that you don't have separate injectors, but you have one single one. But that brings with it a whole new um, genre of challenges as well. Um, one of the things we didn't talk about is stability and packaging. These are very important. We have to make sure that the patient stores them. So let's say if you're a woman that you carry it in your purse um, and that you don't um, leave this out in the cold or put it, put your purse in a hot place because then the, the drug inside will degrade and you will, that, that could potentially be harmful to a patient. That would never occur when uh, a medical practitioner would give it to you. So the concept of multi-dose sounds convenient, 
but it brings with it other concerns that we would have. No, um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, the fact that, again, these patients are in the dark, um, sometimes they're in the dark. We have to consider what ifs that you may not normally think about. Um, and that means that you have to really understand the patient's 24 hour a day routine. I can imagine. So, um, yeah, so from this case study, we can understand that um, risks uh, are really, uh, can be really important and we have to test them and to, and to really um, put in place all the, uh, the reports and the protocols uh, just to verify that our product is, is correct. So um, on, that, on that way, so how are you helping your customers on that? So I suppose that you are taking those kind of projects in place uh, at your firm? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, Aid Biopharma Consulting Group uh, is a full-spectrum consultancy to pharma, biotech, and medical device companies. Uh, we help companies with research and development and with regulatory affairs. So we help them understand what will be the regulatory strategy to help take their product uh, to market, including through clinical trials. And then once it's approved, how to uh, perfect it keep improving it in the marketplace so that it um, it serves better and better purposes as time goes on. Great. So where can people follow up with you? Well, they can certainly look me up um, on LinkedIn under my name, Sharon Aid, A-Y-D. Um, you can also find me at aidbiopharmaconsultinggroup.com. I know that's a long uh, URL. And my cell phone is 847-217-3177. With plus one at the beginning for people that are calling. With plus out one of, for the United States. The yes, valid. I will put anyway all those information on the show notes uh, so that uh, you can uh, get in contact uh, with Sharon Aid. Uh, and uh, also ask her questions if you have also questions about uh, about combination products or about development of, of, of products. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, so for the audience, so um, uh, if you want to check the show notes, so you just go to podcast.easymedicaldevice.com. Uh, and if you have also uh, some uh, questions, don't hesitate to uh, send an email to info at easymedicaldevice.com. Uh, please also uh, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, don't forget also to provide a review. It takes two minutes, but it's really helping me a lot. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for all of the people that already provided the review. Uh, I will try to collect them and to read them sometime uh, on the podcast also so that I can get uh, some credits to people. Uh, so, and uh, yeah, if you have also some uh, questions or some topics that you want to see on the podcast, don't hesitate also to send me the email and ask me uh, for those topics. Okay, so Sharon, uh, it was a pleasure to have you. Thank you for all your help. Thank you for all the information you provided and the case study. I hope it will help a lot of people. Uh, and I wish you a nice day. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Have a nice day. <laughs>